This podcast and the following message are brought to you by SmartPixel. Turn your website's anonymous visitors into engaged customers. SmartPixel turns your anonymous website visitors into fully identified first-party consumer data. When this match and identification takes place, SmartPixel can return up to 300 attributes on the consumer. You get name, postal address, email, gender, and date of birth, plus more specific details like home ownership, vehicle ownership, political party affiliation, presence of children in the household, and many more. SmartPixel, real-time information about your website visitors, easy to install, and fully GDPR and CCPA compliant. Find out more by going to autoconverse.com forward slash smartpixel. That's www.autoconverse.com forward slash S-M-A-R-T-P-I-X-L. And thank you. Fun fact, less than 5% of the World Economic Forum members drive electric cars, meaning that more than 95% of all members of the World Economic Forum drive awful, gas-guzzling, bad-for-the-environment, evil, and boy, did I forget racist, vehicles that are currently destroying our home planet. So as you may or may not know, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum just recently called for the end of private car ownership, encouraging that all global leaders should enforce laws to ensure that we all share or walk. That was the Quack Brothers talking about the World Economic Forum's vision for ending private vehicle ownership. But this is not the first time that the WEF has brought the idea to light. Back in 2016, they published an article titled Goodbye Car Ownership, Hello Clean Air. The article talked about how private car ownership is leading to severe amounts of air pollution. Well, it seems that the article has failed at getting everyone to turn in their cars, as Klaus Schwab and the WEF have made another grand announcement to the world, stating yet again that we need to surrender our rights to private ownership. Now, I don't know about you, but it does seem like this Klaus Schwab guy has an awful lot of influence on international policy. But what else is behind this drive to get rid of private vehicle ownership? Well, stick around and maybe we can find out. From Autoverse Media, this is Autoconverse. Hey, we got a good show lined up for you today. Oh, well, I'm a Game of Thrones nut, so that's, that's, that's my jam. The robots are listening. The robots are listening. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Autoconverse podcast, where we explore people, ideas, and technologies that influence how we are connected and the way we get around. I am Ryan Girardi. Great, as always, to be here with you. We touched last week on the hypocrisy of global elitists advocating for climate change amidst a so-called climate crisis by flying around in their private jets. Well, now we know they also are not leading the way by example, with non-electric private cars. Again, one more thing to keep an eye on. Later on in the program, we'll get a bit more into some of these factors. But for right now, let's take a look at what's going on in the world. The three major indexes all ended lower for the week, snapping their longest weekly winning streak since November. Meme stock Bed Bath & Beyond closed out its week with a brutal sell-off. But at least one investor was not holding the bag. GameStop chairman Ryan Cohen made $68.1 million in profit 
from BBBY's rise after cashing out. Now, U.S. retail sales were flat in July, with an increase in non-car-related purchases offsetting a decline in gas sales. Lower gas prices likely freed up money for people to spend elsewhere. Gasoline sales slid 1.8%, reflecting the drop in pump prices. However, over the last week, I don't think it's continued to go down. President Biden has signed the Inflation Reduction Act, officially enacting into law the federal government's largest ever investment into fighting climate change. Yes, you heard that, climate change, among other health care and tax reforms as well. Now, his signature is just the beginning of an elaborate rollout. Biden will next travel across the country touting the bill and throw a party at the White House on September 6th. Wonder how everybody's going to get there. Fox News refers to it as the Green New Deal 2.0. And more on this later in the program as well. And these news bits, by the way, come from Morning Brew, the free business newsletter landing in your inbox every morning. Get the daily email that makes reading the news actually enjoyable and support Autoconverse by using our referral link in the show notes or go to autoconverse.com forward slash brew. Stay informed and entertained for free with Morning Brew. I'm going to introduce something here to the podcast that I don't think I've brought up before. It's around the idea of ESG and ESG ratings. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Corporate Governance is what it means. Now, value and quality have always been the most important factors for customer satisfaction. Uh, It's a formula that has worked for every company, whether they sold cars or beach towels. As long as people get reliable product or service at a fair rate, we feel good about our decision. Now, these factors are still important, but they've been partially eclipsed by the reputation of the company itself. So a company could be offering a top-end product at an amazing value, but if they're seen as being socially irresponsible or otherwise objectionable, they become a pariah in the marketplace. And we see this primarily happen on Twitter, but also in big corporate media as well. When company losses due to public backlash, these are nothing new. There's stories everywhere, some kind of laughable now, but about marketing companies that have failed spectacularly. But the difference now is that companies find themselves in position where they have to cater not to public whims, but some arbitrary measures of a third party. So it's not necessarily the customers who might be blackballing the company now. It is an organization that has inserted itself into the commercial marketplace and now wields what I would say is an unsettling amount of influence and power when it comes to which companies will succeed and which ones will uh, stop or never see the light of day. And this all boils down to what are known as ESG ratings, which are assigned by a handful of investment risk analytics companies. Sustainalytics, MCCI, and RepRisk, and... Institutional Shareholder Services, ISS, these are the dominant companies, but there are more. At each company, the ratings, they cover the same issues, but there's no universal standard or framework for assessing the ratings. There's also no singular way to interpret them. So this has created a disparity in how companies are rated. How those ratings are used 
in a meaningful way and even what the ratings actually represent. So where do ESG ratings come from? Okay, they were originally introduced as a concept by advocate investor and author John Elkington. He laid out the framework in his book, Cannibals with Forks, the triple bottom line of 21st century business, which was published in 1997 and has since become a fundamental book in the world of corporate social responsibilities. Let me pause here for a moment and just proclaim, uh, I don't think, I think, I'd like to see us all embrace the idea of sustainability, uh, energy and sustainability, and being in harmony with the planet, absolutely. But in theory, ESG scores evaluate three pieces of criteria in order to help investors find ethical or mindful companies in which to invest. So they have ratings over environmental so remember, I said environmental, social, and corporate governance. So at the environmental level, you have things like carbon emissions, and carbon footprint, and water, raw material sourcing, toxic emissions, packaging, waste, you know, the impact of companies on the environment. Social aspect gets into things like labor management, product safety, privacy, data security, uh, accessible communication, community relations, things like that. What is the impact of the company on the people, the employees, the customers, and the community in general as a whole. Then you have corporate governance, so diversity boards, in, uh, executive compensation, business ethics, transparency, financial transparency, tax transparency. So these are the factors that go into the ratings. Once the rating is assigned, companies then promote themselves to investors that are looking for companies that align with their values in these areas. So in addition to attracting ethical investors, companies are also often able to obtain lower cost capital. Now, we've got an article coming out that's going to start looking at some of the problems with ESG ratings and their impact. I wanted to lay this here really as an initial brick to lay the foundation on our focus on energy and sustainability, um, you know, climate change and the environment. And, you know, I won't be shy about it. We definitely want to... Uh, we definitely want to challenge the status quo of what a climate crisis is. I'm going to play some clips here, more from the Quack Brothers. I'm going to have a segment here coming up where he's really getting into the raw materials, the minerals, the resources that are needed to make products in general, specifically automobiles and now battery electric vehicles. And what you're going to hear him explain is that there is no shortage of these raw materials and their impact on the planet as long as we continue to focus on how we mine for raw materials and how we use these resources, raw materials, as long as we continue to keep the planet in mind and always making improvements in those directions, we have vast, long-term, deep resources. And it is fair to challenge the idea, the idea that we're in some sort of climate crisis and in the next 10 to 12 years, we're not going to be able to exist as humans. Now, here's me on the MTC show last month. My guests that day were Mike Columbus and Kelly Saunders, and they're both in the automotive retail business. And we had a great, we had a conversation about uh, how car buying is, has changed so drastically since the pandemic and what they're expecting it to look like in the years to come. But as a precursor to that, uh, I did a segment about uh, electric vehicle development, charging stations, and 
and the impact that EVs are beginning to have at both the uh, supply and demand level at the retail level and as you'll find out in this month's MTC show coming up next week uh, the the disposal and the the exit of electric vehicles and that impact on that marketplace that economy as well but here's the bit on EVs and then we'll circle back around to some facts about our natural resources All right, all right. Let's get this show on the road. Got a lot of cool stuff going on today and looking forward to getting through it all. Starting with electric vehicles, which accounted for 5.6% of the total U.S. auto market in quarter number two of this year. This is according to a new report from Cox Automotive. Let me bring that up on screen so we can have it. Now, why? Why is this significant? Why does this carry major uh, implications? It's because 5% is the tipping point after which EVs skyrocket from niche to mainstream. And this is according to a Bloomberg report of 19 countries, which I think is, you know, I had these in order and then they won't skip on showing that on screen. But this happened in Norway in 2013. It occurred in China in 2018 and then in South Korea in 2021. 5% is apparently the threshold where people go from thinking, quote unquote, my neighbor has an EV. That's odd to, wow, three people on my street have EVs. I think I want one too. The adoption pattern is not exclusive to electric vehicles. You see it play out across the tech industry. It's called the S-curve. I'm sure we've all heard of the S-curve. So basically, when a new technology such as TV or the Internet is first introduced, it is only used by a small number of early adopters. Growth tends to be relatively slow. But that growth accelerates in dramatic fashion once the normies catch wind, for instance. Uh, So for the EVs, that's 5%. It's not saying everything's 5%. saying that with electric vehicles, and I just cited the countries, Norway, China, South Korea, uh, once they hit 5%, Then adoption started to really accelerate. And so in the final stages of the S-curve, growth, uh, once again, it stagnates uh, as it holds out, as as holdouts hold out. So the question is, will this happen in the U.S.? So hypothetically, yes, if the U.S. follows the same EV adoption pattern as other countries that hit the 5% threshold, then a full 25% of new car sales would be electric by the end of 2025. This is per Bloomberg. And so that would actually pass uh, forecast by a solid year or two. Now, we've been reporting on the adoption of electric vehicles. And I say adoption, I should say the manufacturer of electric vehicles over the past few years. Most automakers are aiming for 2030 to 2035 to have their entire fleet be 100% electric. There are some exceptions to that, such as Toyota, who is focused on hydrogen fuel cell in addition to electric vehicles. Now, for us to get to this, this threshold, this crossover, there are some hurdles we have to overcome. So first, the average EV cost over $66,000 here in the U.S., which is over $20,000 more than the average price for all new cars. In fact, I think I even have a report talking about the average price 
of used cars because here I am talking about adoption. Uh, but I do have an article. Yeah, there we go. The average new car price in the U.S. has now surpassed forty-eight thousand dollars. So you're talking almost twenty grand more at sixty-six for uh, your average electric vehicle. So that's one factor. It's the cost that's gonna is gonna impact the curve, and the other is a lack of fast charging networks, which we report on here consistently. That's hindering adoption in the U.S. A recent survey suggests that 61% of Americans who say they were were not gung-ho about buying an EV, an EV cited the uncertainty around finding a charging station. Looking ahead, projects are underway to build more chargers across the fruited plain. In fact, the Biden administration is going to hand out $7.5 billion for electric charging infrastructure to states. And GM and Pilot recently announced a partnership that would increase the number of fast chargers in the U.S. by 20%. So I think most of us might be familiar with, uh, you know, the travel company, gas station, uh, refueling center pilot, and they're working with GM and EVgo to uh, ramp out even more charging stations. I did report uh, a month or two ago about uh, Tesla's charging station in the West Coast. I think it's going from, I want to say like Seattle to Las Vegas or Reno to Las Vegas. So obviously, these are important developments that are pushing and allowing EV adoption uh, to unfold as well. Now, obviously, this is a big subject, and we're not going to get entirely into that. I just wanted to lay the foundation for that. We'll come back around to that later in the program and moving forward. Before we go any further, how about some headlines? All right, so to begin, President Biden has signed a historic climate bill called the Inflation Reduction Act. It represents a historic investment in measures aimed at combating climate change, lowering the cost of some prescription drugs, and raising enough revenues to cut the deficit rather than adding to it. That seems to be a familiar pattern. Let's create bills to increase revenue to reduce the deficit. And then a few years later, it's we need more bills to create more revenue to reduce the deficit that keeps growing. It does seem to be repeating. Uh, this bill is a slimmed down version of last year's failed $3.5 trillion Build Back Better bill, which would have significantly expanded the social safety net and made bigger investments in climate and clean energy initiatives. Now, according to a summary by the Senate Democrats, the bill will invest $437 billion over the next decade, nearly 85% of which will go to climate and energy security provisions. And to pay for them, it will raise an estimated $737 billion in revenues through a new corporate minimum tax, uh, prescription drug pricing reform, and stepped-up IRS enforcement of tax rules. I think we've all heard Iris is getting something like 87,000 new agents for the agency. The surplus $300 billion would then be put toward cutting the deficit. That represents about 1% of the national debt, which has now topped $30 trillion for the first time. So why is a bill called the Inflation Act being referred to by some as the Build Back Better Plan 2.0? 
or even referred to as a climate bill. And I think among the largest line items are $27 billion for projects that reduce greenhouse gas emissions, more than half of which is allocated for low-income and disadvantaged communities. There's $10 billion for the long-term residency, reliability, and affordability of rural electric systems, and $3 billion for the U.S. Postal Service to buy zero-emission vehicles. There is also $4.3 billion for home energy efficiency rebates of up to $4,000 or $8,000 for low- or moderate-income households. And the agricultural sector is included as well, with programs focused on helping farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners monitor and address climate issues, including greenhouse gas emissions. So Democrats say the bill will cut carbon emissions to 40% of 2005 levels by 2030. Hmm. Well, it's possible that carbon carbon levels will be reduced that much by 2030, but not because of the bill. They've already been going down because cars are much more uh, carbon-friendly to the environment. Electric cars obviously are too when they're operating, not when they're recharging. Now, Democrats' revenue estimates may be overly optimistic. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimates that the bill will not meaning, meaningfully cut inflation and will only reduce the deficit by $100 billion. But others, such as former Clinton Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers, who sounded early warnings last year on inflation, believe the bill's IRS reform provisions will generate far more revenue than the CBO estimates. So look, you have a typical spending bill, (laughs) and it's aimed at increasing revenue through taxation. It's got incentives built into it, and it's focused on companies that are going to meet certain standards, which we just addressed, are going to be tied to these ambiguous ESG standards. So definitely something here to keep an eye on. In other news... The U.S. Department of Transportation has proposed changes to federal agency rules that would allow passengers to seek a refund if an airline changes departure or arrival times for a domestic flight by three hours or more, changes the arrival or departure airport, changes or adds connections in a flight itinerary, or changes the type of plane being flown. So basically, if they do a switcheroo on you. The proposed rules would expand protections for consumers who are unable to fly for pandemic-related reasons and have non-refundable tickets, allowing them to receive travel credits or vouchers that do not expire. These consumers could also be eligible for refunds from airlines that received significant government financial assistance. So there you go. The government is getting more regulated than the airline industry to protect innocent passenger customers. Now here's something fun. Remember Olympic gold medalist Usain Bolt? Well, Bolt Mobility, the Miami-based micro-mobility startup founded by Usain Bolt, appears to have vanished without a trace from several of its U.S. markets. In some cases, the departure has been abrupt, leaving cities with abandoned equipment, plus unanswered calls and emails and lots of questions. Bolt has stopped operating in at least eight U.S. cities with some city representatives claiming they were unable to reach anyone at Bolt, including its CEO, Ignacio Tzumas. So if you see any uh, mobility scooters lying around that say Bolt on them, might want to grab them up because it seems like they just got left behind and they're now up for grabs. 
Nissan Motor is launching a sustainable finance framework to help fund its next generation electrified vehicles, batteries, environmental technologies, and new mobility services. Proceeds from the Nissan Sustainable Finance Framework will also be used to support projects in Nissan's use of renewable energy, including clean manufacturing systems, EV recharging infrastructure, battery use, and autonomous drive technologies. Isn't it pretty neat seeing all these automobile companies just they're just evolving in front of our eyes into electric car companies, electric battery makers, autonomous, like it's all happening right in front of our eyes. But looking at other clean energy technologies, Raytheon Technologies has been selected by the U.S. Department of Energy for two research and development projects to test the use of hydrogen and ammonia as effective zero-carbon options for electricity generation. Using ammonia presents several advantages, including pre-existing production and transportation infrastructure, that requires much less refrigeration in comparison to hydrogen and the ability to easily store it as a liquid as well. Now, you might recall last episode, we we focused in on Toyota's push for hydrogen fuel cell. The use of hydrogen is popular from a cleanliness standpoint. The challenges with hydrogen are storage and distribution of it because it is so explosive. Now, Enios... E-N-E-O-S, that's an acronym for a company. Enios and Toyota have signed a joint agreement to explore CO2-free hydrogen production and usage at Woven City. It's a prototype city of the future that Toyota has started to develop in Sosono City, Japan. And together with Toyota's subsidiary, Woven Planet Holdings, they will accelerate efforts by managing technical logistics. According to the agreement, Enios will establish and operate a hydrogen refueling station near Woven City and will also produce green hydrogen, hydrogen that is derived from renewable energy at the station. So yeah, there's some pretty neat developments going on with the application of hydrogen as energy. And as you've heard me mention before, you know, we scour and curate a lot of developments out there and some don't necessarily make it to the podcast or to one of our live shows. Um, And I like to go back and dig through there and see what kind of developments had come out, but that just didn't make the cut at the time. Here's one. Early in 2021, Toyota and autonomous car development firm Aurora announced a massive long-term partnership that would see the two companies combine forces to help refine and prepare Aurora's tech for public use. Well, now, a little over a year later, this is back in March, um, we are beginning. To, we are getting to see some of what's to come. Aurora unveiled its ride-hailing test fleet, equipped with the company's Aurora Drive platform, which is a hardware solution that includes the sensors and ancillary bits required to enable vehicle autonomy. Aurora is still hard at work preparing its Aurora Connect service for public use. The vehicles will continue their testing regimen until the company deems the fleet ready. So that's pretty cool. It's like a aftermarket. You know, add on to your fleet to convert your 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 fleet vehicle, your fleet into autonomous an autonomous fleet. Very cool. And speaking of cool auto tech, Audi announced it would support hollow rides in car VR technology starting this summer. In June, select Audi models with the company's MB3 infotainment system will ship with the necessary software to sync with hollow ride compatible headsets. 
with the company planning to support the feature first in Germany, the UK, and the US before making it available in other markets. At the center of the experience is something Holleride calls elastic content. When passengers play an interactive video or game, the experience adapts to the car's movements. The company says it makes the experience more immersive and helps to prevent motion sickness. So there you go, some super high-tech VR technology for passengers inside the car. Coming up. But this time, it's not for the reason of cleaning up air pollution. That actually doesn't exist anymore. Just like how our immune systems, along with the healthy lifestyle of diet and exercise, did not exist for the last two years. This time, we need to eradicate private car ownership for the purpose of reducing demand for critical metals. In fact, the original article posted by the World Economic Forum is titled, Three Circular Economy Approaches to Reduce Demand for Critical Metals. With the first and foremost approach being for all of us to go from owning cars to using them. What? Hey folks, the following mindset tip is brought to you by Ask Auto. before your plan, even before understanding your priorities and your focus, it's really developing that confidence to take action. I love what Mel Robbins shares about having that willingness to try. Confidence is another word that just gets thrown about these days. You know, I wish I was confident. I want to be as confident as then. I am a confident individual. But what if we kind of flip that perspective and look at it as a willingness to try? You know, in spite of fear, in spite of what the result might be, you know, there's that big cliche quote of I'm either going to win or I'm going to learn. But really taking that and embodying that and knowing that no matter what the result is, I have the willingness to try. And especially if you're turning a side hustle into a full time business, you need that willingness to try, that willingness to take action, that willingness to feel the fear, but do it anyway, as that amazing book by Susan Jeffries said. So I think absolutely confidence is is key in life, but especially in business and becoming an entrepreneur. It's connecting to your inner potential, to your core confidence. Les Brown might say to the greatness you have inside. Joe Dispenza might say to the genius within. We all have different words for it, but essentially it's that inner potential and that inner power that everybody has. A lot of people doubt it, but everybody has that. So it's about connecting to that confidence from the core so then it's about bringing that to your to your everyday life and carrying that thought of ignite the fire you've you've got the experience you've got the evidence so it's much easier to show up when that fear does for example pressing live on a facebook having a sales conversation whatever it might be when that feeling of fear comes up it's about making that conscious choice to take action anyway Well, that was Harriet Bratt, international speaker, trainer, and firewalk instructor during B2B hour on auto conversion. Our company blog and website, not to be confused with Auto Converse, this podcast that you're listening to. Harriet was talking about building confidence by seeking out opportunities to shine and excel and to do your thing. You can visit Harriet on the web by going to her website at harrietbratt.com. That's H A R R I E T. B-R-A-T-T dot com. Hey, Dad, are you still looking for a car? Did you know that when you click on car ads, dealers pay for every click? 
But shouldn't you get paid? After all, you're the one clicking. That's why I use Ask Auto. With Ask Auto, you build rewards as you shop. Plus, Ask Auto recommends exclusive offers based on your needs. You can ask questions on cars you like and still protect your personal information. You can even set your price. Who knew car shopping could be so easy and rewarding? Ask Auto. Fast, fun, and rewarding car shopping. In the final segment here of today's episode, I'm going to be playing you a segment from our live show just last month. I'll intertwine it with some clips from the Quack Brothers video that was playing. I highly recommend you check out the Quack Brothers video. I'll put it in the show notes so you can get out, get the whole thing. There's a lot of great uh, factual information in there. And as always, the Quack Brothers provide a great perspective on things. Now, at this point, there may be a few people that may say, Daniel, there's roughly 1.4 billion cars existing in the world today. 56 million or 70 million means nothing. And sure, from that perspective, we don't have enough copper. But let's also consider the fact that according to the International Copper Study Group, copper is one of the few raw materials which can be recycled repeatedly without any loss of performance. On top of that, between 2010 and 2020, copper reserves have actually grown from 240 million metric tons to 870 million. Meaning that within those 10 years, our copper reserves have nearly quadrupled within that time frame. So strike one for Klaus Schwab. Now with that said, let's move on to critical metals unique to electric and gas powered vehicles. Starting with electric cars, which according to specialty metals, the most common metal that is currently used in the production of electric vehicles is aluminum. In fact, the average Tesla typically contains roughly 410 pounds of aluminum just in the body of the car alone, let alone its battery. But of course, the question everyone wants the answer to, which is, are we running out? And well, no. In fact, according to the United States Geological Survey, aluminum is currently the second most abundant metallic element in the Earth's crust after silicone. Now, on top of aluminum being one of the most abundant elements on Earth, it's also one of the easiest to recycle. In fact, according to Mid-Georgia State University and the University of Nottingham, a recycled aluminum can can be used again on the shelf in as little as 60 days. And considering the abundance of aluminum that we have on Earth, there's actually a strong argument that we may never run out let alone experience a shortage to the point where we have to end private ownership of cars. But of course, in talking about electric cars, the most important part is the battery, which the two leading metals needed for the production of electric car batteries are lithium and cobalt. Now, what's interesting to me is that both are fully recyclable. Both lithium and cobalt metals can be reused over and over repeatedly. And as if that wasn't enough, according to Volkswagen research, the total global reserves for lithium are estimated to be at 14 million tons. This corresponds to 165 times the production volume in 2018. As in, the amount of lithium we have in global reserves is 165 times the amount we use in a recent year. And in regards to cobalt, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, identified world terrestrial cobalt resources are at about 25 million tons, and also more than 120 million tons of cobalt resources have been identified in manganese nodules and crusts on the floor of the Atlantic, Indian, and Pacific Ocean. Which, by the way, currently 46% of all cobalt in the United States were used in super alloys, mainly in aircraft gas turbine engines, as in private jets. Hmm. So maybe we're not the ones that need to give up private ownership of anything. Now, in moving on to critical metals needed in the production of normal gas-powered vehicles, 
we're only mainly talking about one element here, which is steel. In fact, according to JD Power, it is the most common material you'll see in a typical car driving down the road. And if you look at it from the context of vehicle manufacturing, the steel is primarily produced from iron ore, which currently in 2022, the world's resources of crude iron ore are estimated to exceed 800 billion tons containing more than 230 billion tons of iron, which by the way is the largest reserve of any metal needed for the construction of a typical car. And if you take into account that iron could be endlessly recycled without its material qualities being compromised, you can begin to question whether or not these claims made by Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum are legitimate or not. In fact, if you look at all rare earth metals used in renewable energy solutions, we actually have enough to last us till the year 2856. Which, hey, it's kind of nice knowing that our planet has enough critical metals to last us till I'm 862 years old. But regardless of whether or not the WEF is right, they're still going to push for no more private car ownership. And while this may be how they're doing it, as Klaus Schwab is calling for every global leader to continue increasing gas prices, meaning that for everyone around the world and not just the US, we may actually start paying more for gas than we've been paying so far. And to me, this is all pretty crazy as there is currently enough gasoline for everyone in the world for the next 50 years, just based on our current oil reserves alone. But of course, at the end of the day, it's the same old tune. The global elites want more power, control, and resources at the expense of us, the hardworking citizens of the world. Because of course, it's easier to control and have more power over the masses when we don't have any means of independent transportation. And what that does, if you really think about it, is hinder our ability as a people to assemble. Avengers! Assemble. Which honestly, I think is what they fear the most, a people united. Because considering that a vast majority of WEF members fly to Davos every year on a private jet and also use them on a daily basis, if they really do care about the environment and these issues, well, then maybe they should just fly commercial flights just like the rest of us. All right, well, that's a wrap. Thanks again for tuning in. Be sure to text the keyword AutoConverse to 855-766-7585. We'll send you a link to our YouTube channel so you can subscribe. And that way you have a chance to catch the live shows that we do every month. Or if you miss them, you'll at least be able to catch the replays. The live shows, as I've said, are like live recording sessions. And then as you hear on the podcast, we play bits and pieces of them. So two totally different experiences. We'll also send you a link when you do that uh, to subscribe to our podcast. We did have to reset our RSS feed, and I think we might have lost some subscribers in the process. Uh, But hopefully everyone can find us again got to search the keyword autoconverse all one word and your preferred podcast app and i guess i need to check on doge here let's see oh okay doge stands at six cents just under seven cents at 0.06980 that is down about seven percent from this time last week but still up six percent for the month so if you're a doge holder you know what to say to the moon See you next week.
This is Audiburst Media.